0: Ephesians 4, 11-16, it's closing out and bracketing in that segment that began in verse 7. We read the whole thing together last week, but let me just read 11-16, through 16, and then we'll walk through it as a body. Starting in verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What we find in 4, 7 through 16 is this, in one sense, it's a movement of, of those things God gives to the individual, and then he turns and he pivots, and this is all couched in this discussion of the church, and then he comes over here and he focuses in, he says, this is what I gave to the individual, and then he comes into eleven. he says, this is what I gave to the church. And what he does in this passage is he, he, he ties the bow on it, he shows us how these things work together, and that's what we're going to see this morning, how to function with inside the church, okay? And so last week we talked about, about how these things, each one of us, have been given a gift in salvation. And so, so God came into Zach's life. He, he saved him. He changed him. He, he quit being the horrible dead person he was before in Ephesians 2. Now he's alive. And in that living, he's been given a gift. And the same is true of all of us. And so he went into to James's life. He went into Glenn's life. I'm not just going to hate on the men, he went into Jenny's life, he went into Angela's life, and they were dead, he made them alive, and he said, here you go, here's a gift. And what we find is that gifting is meant to be used in the life of a church. And so here he comes in verse 11, and he says, look, and this is what else he did. And he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so what Paul does shortly here is he's laying out all the ways that God saw fit to bless the church so that the church might turn around and bless and bring honor and glory to his name. So he starts off, he says, look, this is what he did. He gave, and your translation might say, and he gave some to be. But look here, it says he gave the apostles. God quite simply in his unlimited wisdom gave men who, what is an apostle? An apostle is someone who has been witness to the risen Lord. So he's someone that saw Jesus after the resurrection. So he appointed some as apostles, these, these men who would go on and would write the New Testament, these men who would go on and would travel around and would leave out from Jerusalem and would plant churches and start amazing ministries, men from whom you and I, we, we would not exist today lest it be for their efforts, for their energies, for the spirit of God moving in their lives. So he gave some to be apostles, he gave some to be prophets. He gave some to go into communities and say, this is what the word of God says, this is what your culture is doing, this is how your culture is completely out of line, completely out of whack with the the word of God. And so he gave men to boldly stand in this prophetic office and to come out and say, hey, hey! This is what it says, look what your life is. If your life is meant to be a reflection of what this word says, then one of these things is radically wrong. So he gave men to call people back into account of God. He gave men and used men as spokespersons for himself. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. And then it kind of comes into the realm that you and I are more comfortable dealing in, the realm that you and I are more accustomed to dealing with. He says he gave some to be evangelists. You'll remember that when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-5, he wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Well, quite simply, what does an evangelist do? Well, he, he encounters lost people. He encounters lost people. To be an evangelist is to be somebody who's communicating the good news. The good news is, is the gospel. That although man was sinful and dead and lost in their transgressions, that God sent his son to die in their stead, and that he raised him on the third day, that he sits high and exalted at the right hand of God, and that in believing in that, and following in faith in God, that man might be forgiven. This is an evangelist occupation. This is an evangelist's calling, and we recognize, we recognize in Matthew 28 that all of us are called to share the good news, right? Right? It's called the, the, the great commission, not the good suggestion, right? Do you get that? You're going to catch that later. It's Mother's Day. Some of you are slower. You're just so focused on, on not get drooling on your shirt. Not drooling on your shirt. Your mom doesn't like that. Don't do that. But it's called the Great Commission, not the Good Suggestion. So we're all called to share the gospel. We recognize that certain people have been set aside and they've been called vocationally into this role. This is what they do. They travel around and they share the good news. And I've spent some time with people that are evangelists. These people are incredible. They walk up, they've never met a stranger, they're incredibly extroverted, and they walk up and they say, Can I tell you something? Person says, What? And they say, Can I tell you about Jesus? And they just start sharing, and God has placed an anointing on their lives that many of the people they share with end up coming to faith. So he moves in and he says, Look, we've got evangelists, but we've also got shepherds, or your translation might say pastors. This idea of a shepherd, this idea of a shepherd, Paul is bringing in, we find the New Testament often bringing in this kind of agricultural idea of what it is to keep sheep. What it is to keep sheep. Recognize that God is spoken of as a shepherd in the 23rd Psalm. For the Lord is my shepherd. So here Paul says, look, God has given some to be shepherds. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us a, a kind of a job description for these pastors, and to recognize that, that there's a, a wide degree of, of semantic overlap. These words mean the same thing. They're synonymous with one another. And so they can, to a certain degree, be used interchangeably. Words like pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop. Look what he says, verse, verse 1, um, starting in chapter 5 of First Peter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Effectively saying, look, I'm an elder, but I'm also an Apostle. as as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, and he uses the verb form of shepherd. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So give guidance, give direction. Steer the ship, so to speak. Steer the ship, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion. Don't do it because you have to. Don't do it because you're made to do it, but willingly, as God would have you. He says, not for shameful gain. So don't look to line your pockets with money as you're engaging in this, this pattern of shepherding. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. So don't be a jerk when you do it. Don't be a jerk when you do it. Don't lord authority over people's lives. If you notice, there are different ways to lead people. right? There are different ways of doing it. I, kind of thinking of this, there, there are two mentalities of you could go with dog training. So I've got this book in my office. It's called How to Speed Train Your Bird Dog. How to Speed Train Your Bird Dog. I'm on the slow train. You're, 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 well, we don't know if he's a bird dog yet, right? We don't know if he'll find any birds. But, but going through this book, and this book has pictures, and I love books with pictures. And it's got one of these pictures where it's, it's got the dog, and the guy's got the dog by the neck, and he's growling at the dog, and the dog's just like, what is up with this? The dog does not look happy. And he says, this is how to show Roscoe displeasure. I think Roscoe gets it. I think Roscoe gets it. Right? And so there's also the way of saying it. Just, you know, and so there's another school of thought that says, when the dog doesn't do what you want it to do, you take it and you put it away from you because it derives pleasure from being around you. There are a variety of ways that one might be shepherding a flock. But what Peter says here is there's only one biblical way and that is to not be domineering, not to be lording one's authority over people. So when you see issues, you see problems, or you see a way that you need to lead people, you guide them, you pull them in that direction. You're not beating them. You're not lording over them. You're not shoving them in this way, but you're loving them in this way. He says, not not domineering, not domineering, but be examples to the flock. It's amazing that he... He pits these things against one another. He says, look, don't be domineering. Don't be seeking to lord your authority over them. But instead, show them how they are to walk. Just as a shepherd goes about leading his flock in the midst of something, so a shepherd in the biblical sense and in church sense is leading the flock in a certain direction. So if I come to you and say, look, I want you to share the gospel. And you say, Matt, are you sharing the gospel? I'm like, no, but this is what I want you to do. Like, it doesn't work that way. Do you see that? And so those that you have placed your life, you're in, you're under authority, under their authority, the word that Peter gives us here is that they should be setting examples before you. And so they're modeling ways that you are to behave. They're modeling ways that you are to behave. And lastly, he comes to this idea, he says, and teachers. We recognize that one of the functions of the men that God has placed in authority over the church is to teach, to instruct, to say, this is how you study God's word, this is how you memorize and internalize god's word now let me just say quickly that these people that god has given to the church will be of no use to you they will be of no use to you if you don't stay plugged into a church one of the signs of a healthy church are churches where they have had long pastorates you can find over and over and over again Churches that are, generally speaking, doing well, and you can find men that abuse this, people that abuse this, but churches that do well have long pastorates. They don't have this series of quick, quick succession pastorates, and so you've got somebody who comes in who lives two or three years, he says, this is terrible, like, is a month of really good stuff, but the rest of it was just terrible, and then he goes on to the next town looking for something bigger, looking for something better. But churches who have pastors that come in that live in the community that shepherd this flock and do so over a long period of time, generally end up with healthier congregations. And why is that? Because the people have placed themselves in submission to these pastor shepherds for a long period of time. So over the long haul, these pastors are exercising oversight. They are being examples to the flock, and they're leading them in a certain way. And the flock is seeing that over and over and over again. They're seeing difficulties pop up. They're seeing prominent couples get divorced. And this this pastor, shepherd, come alongside and says, this is how we're going to navigate this. This is how we're going to steer this. Love the husband, love the wife, and hopefully, hopefully lead them back to reconciliation. Now, what this asks of each and every member of a local church is that you don't bail quickly. If, if, if you have a hard time plugging into a local church and so you go to a church for a month or for a year and then you move and you go somewhere else and you do this same thing over and over and over again, all under the auspices of, I just wanted to be an encouragement to all those I encounter. Like, this won't work for you. God's intention and in design is for you to be plugged into a local body over the long haul. Over the long haul. And in as much as you do this and these men are following godly principles... Like, don't go somewhere where they're just awful, but inasmuch as they're following godly principles and they're living life in accordance with the word, the church is gonna flourish. And why is that? Look what he says next. He says, because their role is to, to equip the saints. The role of the men, the role of these gifts, the, the way they should play out in your lives is one of equipping. He says, they are to work to equip the saints. These apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, and teachers. Their role, what they're meant to be doing, what these guys were initially set up to do, is to equip the saints. They're equipping the laity, they're equipping church members, they're equipping people, Christians. Do you see the kind of split that he's got there? On the one hand, you've got leadership, and then you've got those that follow. It's the role of the leadership to equip, to build up, to build up. This idea of equipping really paints the picture of giving one everything they need and so if you come into the church you're a dead person you've been made alive you've got nothing but a heartbeat right a heartbeat and a gift that you don't know what to do with it and so the leadership comes along and says look I recognize this gift in you let's let's plug it in let's see how you can flourish in the body and so I recognize this deficiency in you let's let's work on that let's apply this this teaching in God's Word to your life so we can teach you how to flourish and become an active member of In the body, how you can seek to to do well in this body. The leadership's job is to equip, to disciple, to make sure one is fully outfitted and ready for life, plugged in. Now look look what is the job of the membership. For what are they being equipped? What does it say here? For the work of the ministry. For the work of the ministry. Everybody say, my job is to do ministry. No, say it like you're excited. Say, My job is to do ministry. My job is to do ministry. There you go. There you go. Somebody who's a little late, you really with a gusto on the ministry there. That's right. Uh, yeah, I think this person was also looking at their husband when they said this. My job is to. Min- not- we can work that out later. Wow, that's, that's two or three meetings right there. Okay, so he says, Look. I've given these people, their job is to equip you. Your job is to do the work of the ministry. So this equipping plays right into working out the ministry of the local church. It's amazing how this works. It's amazing how this works. When you, when you, when you understand that when church is done well, the staff what the staff does is build into you. We're pouring our lives into you, we're equipping you, we're noticing deficiencies in you, you're noticing deficiencies in us, and we're trying to lead you. We're trying to be examples to you. And you And Constantly put the word of God in your life and say, do you see this over here? This is what you need to be doing. You need to, not, you need to quit this thing over here, you need to give your life to this. And some of you come in and you say, Matt, what do I need to do? Well you need to put yourself in submission to the leadership, allow us to equip you. Allow us to build you up for what purpose? So that you can get out and do the work of ministry. Well, isn't that your job, pastor? What? No. It's all of our jobs. It's all of our jobs. But this is this beautiful design that he's given. He's placed leadership for equipping. He's placed laity for the work of ministry. And how do you do that ministry? By employing the gift that he gave to you. you. Recognize in salvation, God gave to each one of us a gift. Verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has given you a specific gift For the advancement of his kingdom. For the advancement of his kingdom. And to a certain degree, it is the occupation of those leaders to help you flourish in that gift. To help you employ that gift. So those of you who are saying, I don't really know how to use this gift. Find somebody to come alongside you and help you to flourish in this gift. To what end? To what end? He says, for the building up the body of Christ. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Recognize back in chapter 1 in verses 22 and 23, uh, Paul writing, he says, And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So what we're doing in verse 12 is we're building up the body of Christ. We're building up the church. Inasmuch as you're exercising your gift, allowing leaders, shepherds, evangelists, and these guys to pour into your life for equipping, and then you're taking that gift you should be working it out in the lives of the people of your local church. This is how you do this. Now, you might be doing it in your community, but it all has this kind of base camp mentality of coming back for refueling, coming back for equipping, based out of the local church. It's for building up the body of Christ. And when is the end? When is the end of this, right? That's the question that most people ask. We were driving back from Austin yesterday, and that's the question we got asked a lot. Ah. Uh, when is this road trip over? And my three-year-old says, it's three minutes till it's over. And it's like, we have got to teach you to tell time. We have got to teach you to tell time because this has been the most repeated three minutes of my life. Anyway, and so this is the question we asked. Like, how long do I have to do this? Well, Paul gives us this answer. He anticipates this question. He says, we do this until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, you don't know how long we're in this pursuit until we have unity. This is this amazing thing here. This amazing concept is in this struggle, in seeking to work out the giftings that God has given you, we're creating unity in the church. In seeking to work out these things and do these things, we're creating unity among other brothers and sisters in Christ. So you have some super irritating habits or whatever about you, and we're working alongside one another because we're both gifted in administration for whatever reason. God has a cosmic sense of humor. You irritate the snot out of me. So we're working alongside one another, and we're pushing in the same direction together. You know what he's doing through the power of the Spirit? He is bonding us together. He's bonding us together. He's making you less irritating and me more enduring of your irritation. That's how this is working. At least that's how it's working in my mind. That's what he's doing. He says, look, we're gonna gonna preserve, we're gonna do this until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Look back at 4.5. 4.5 said this. He said, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And six, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. What we are working on, as we seek to grow, is the leadership is equipping you, is bringing people into this one set of understanding. He says there is one faith. There is one faith. There are not many variations of Christian faith, but there is, in fact, only one true Christian faith. This isn't to say that, that Baptists are right and Presbyterians are wrong, that Methodists are right and Anglicans are wrong. What he's getting at is so much larger than denominational particularity. What he's getting at is the idea that there is actually one kernel of truth in this, and that is the gospel. And this gospel, in as much as we seek to grow in it, grow in our knowledge of Christ, the fact that he has saved us, gifted us called us to do life together with other people. He is bonding us together with other people and he is being glorified in our unity. He's being glorified in our unity. And then this is what he did, how he describes that. It is mature manhood. So, if somebody comes to you in a spiritual sense and they say, uh, Zach, it's time to man up. Ken, it's time to man up. Understand, this is what they're getting at. This is what they're saying. It's time to put away these childish hopes, dreams, aspirations. It's time to grow to full maturity. In Christianity, there is never this understanding that it's okay to stay a baby Christian, to stay a baby Christian. If you are still operating under the same way you were when you first came to faith, then you haven't grown very much. In fact, you're moving against the very word of God because what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do is to press on towards mature manhood. And he describes that. He said it is the measure of the fullness of Christ. So how long? It's forever. This is our pursuit. Our pursuit is the fullness of Christ. We want to grow in to be just as mature as Christ is, and he is infinitely mature in the word of God. He himself being God. Now we kind of get to the why. We get to the why in verse 14. Why do we need to press on? Why do we need to enter into this arduous task of hanging around people we really don't care all that much for? We really wish we could limit it to an hour and a half or two hours on a Sunday morning. But why? Look what he says verse 14 so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then he describes that. He says, it is human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. Now, Paul, one other place, had something to say about this idea of of no longer being children. In In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 11, this is what he said. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's calling us into maturity in Christ. And what we find is that there are people who are seeking to lead us astray. There are people who are seeking to lead us astray. We saw this in Ephesians as we walked through. Chapter 2 said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, you were being led astray. And then he goes on, he says, "The spirit is still at work within the sons of disobedience. There are supernatural forces seeking to keep you from pressing on to maturity. This is the reality. Like, you think it's your own laziness, but in reality, there is a spiritual war taking place seeking to keep you from pressing on to maturity because in maturity, there is unity. In unity, God is glorified. It is never the intent of the enemy to see God glorified in any way. And if he can steer you off course from maturity and manhood, if he can steer the church off course in unity, then the, then the enemy wins a victory. Then the enemy wins a victory. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Look what he goes on to describe that as. He said it is human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Paul in Second Corinthians said something very similar to this in Second Corinthians chapter eleven verses three through six. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Garden of Eden, serpent slithers up to Eve, says, Hey lady, what's up? And, and leads her. He says, As he did this by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these these super apostles, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you, and all things. Paul is writing there to that church in Corinth and they have others that have come in and they're advocating a different gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. And they're, they're eloquent. I mean, these guys are, are silver-tongued devils. They're coming out and they're engaging in, in rhetorical, flourish, rhetorical flourish and seeking to lead people by the power of their word. And there are some that are buying into it. There are some that are buying into it and it's almost as if they say, this sounds so close to being right and man, it sounds good. It warms my heart. It's got to be true. It's got to be true. And so they let this kind of, this earworm song that they have sung make its way into their mind, down into their heart, and they begin to adjust the way that they live based upon this thing that they heard. And what he's getting at here, and what he's getting at in 2 Corinthians, is when you are led astray by these things, you're giving evidence to the fact that you are not mature In Christ. And so how do you war against? How do you work against these things? It is by internalizing the word of God. Recognize that money that looks, that the size of an audience is not an indication of the hand of God's approval in someone's life. I have a number of members of my family that, extended family that, they base who they follow on the size of the audience the one is speaking to. What they have failed to do is to submit themselves to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to be this thing that they hold up and say, What does this say? And how does it jive with what is said over here? How does suffering work in the light of prosperity? How do these things work together? And if one of them is right and one of them is wrong, then surely the word of God is that which endures, is that which is true. And this charlatan over here must be disbelief, Must not be followed. And describes it as cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Some of us, our biggest problem is we never endured in the reading of God's word. You read the Bible once a week when it's on the screen. It goes to and fro with you to church and back to home again, and you walk in. And if you're anything like me, you've got a place where your wife tells you to set stuff. You never said anything there. That's a sure sign you'll know where it is. And so you walk in. You set it on the counter. You leave it in the car so that when next Sunday rolls around, you say, where is that Bible? Here it's on the counter. There it's in the car. You don't read the Word of God. The biggest problem we have with errant belief and philosophy popping up, the reason why so many of our children, cousins, co-workers and whatever are led astray, it's not because they're not religious, it's because they don't read the word of God. It's not because they're not good people, it's because they don't read the word of God. They don't read the word of God, so they have no idea what it says when they encounter things. So when somebody comes along to them and they're sick, and somebody comes along to them and says, the reason you're sick is because you have sin in your life. You just need to get rid of sin in your life and you won't be sick anymore. Neither will you die. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't don't read that in here. I don't see that in here. We know that suffering exists for all of us. The The apostles, most of them are put to death in horrible, totally offensive deaths. These men were sold out for Jesus. They died horrific ways. To follow Jesus is to suffer. We're told that. A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. This is the word of Jesus. To follow Jesus is to willingly accept the possibility of suffering. We need to know the word of God. We need to internalize the word of God so that when we hear something that sounds too good to be true, we can measure it against God's word and test to see if the thing is true or false. Look how he pairs this next. This is an amazing thing. Verse 15 has been used probably on many of you, and some of you have used this, and we'll talk later. Taken completely out of context, it just says, speak the truth in love. And so this is how people have used it. They've walked up and said, uh, Chase, you smell really bad. Just want to speak the truth in love. Hold on, i got somebody else to handle up on. And they go over and they say, uh, the way you spend money is offensive. Just, you know, speaking the truth in love. Hold on, let me get someone else. And so they just go through and they're hitting people with this truth machine gun, you know, somewhat indiscriminately, and they find people that irritate them. So they're at a restaurant, the guy behind them smacking, they say, hold on, brother, I'm gonna speak the truth in love, Yeah, cut that out. I'm gonna slap you with a love slap. <laughs> this has nothing to do with this. Like if this is the way that you've been employing God's word, do you know what that shows? You need to give yourself to the careful study of it. Like, you're not pressing on into maturity. You're using it as a tool and a weapon to go after those people that offend you. Now, how do we actually understand this? So he's just talking about errant doctrine. He says, we need to press on to maturity so we're not led astray, and then he comes back into it, and he says, instead of being led astray, instead of allowing these things to lead us all these wild and crazy places, we need to speak the truth in love. So the question we begin to ask ourselves is, what is truth? What is truth in verse 15? We'll, we'll look back at, at chapter 1 and verse 13, and this is important. We need to understand terms according to how the author is using them. So how has Paul been using truth so far in the book of Ephesians? Well, in Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him, so in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth. And we say, aha, we found it. And how does he define it? He says, the word of truth, the gospel, Of your salvation. So, what we get the understanding of here in verse 15 of chapter 4 is that Paul isn't talking about veracity. He's not talking about truth claims. He's not talking about true as opposed to false. When he gets into verse verse 15 and he says, Look, don't be led astray, rather, speaking the truth, and you could substitute and say, In the gospel, speaking in the gospel in love. Speaking the gospel in love. This is what Paul is saying. This is how we combat heresy. We speak the gospel to them. We speak the gospel to those that we disagree with. We speak the gospel over books that you completely can't stand. So when you're reading some book and you say, this is complete and utter trash, this isn't the gospel, instead of just closing the book, you write a letter to the author and you say, look, I'm reading your book. I see this is what the gospel says. Man, I love you. My pastor said I had to write you a letter and I'm just telling you that this is wrong. And these are the 50 reasons why. Would you read it? When you have that crazy cousin of yours who's saying, look, you're sick, you just need to speak to that sickness and tell it to go away, you don't say, huh, you know, I appreciate that, that's very kind of you, a little bit creepy, a little bit kind of you. No, you need to speak the gospel in love to them. And You say, my gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ never tells me that I won't be sick. It never tells me that I won't die, it never tells me these things won't happen to me. But what it tells me is that even in the midst of these, God is still to be glorified in my sickness. God is still to be glorified in my suffering. That's what we do. Verse 15 gives us an application for how to handle those that have teaching contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? It's from a posture and a position of love. You find people you disagree with. You find people that particularize and articulate the gospel in a way that you think is heretical or wrong. This is what our gospel would have us do. It would have us go to them and you say, Friend, I care for you. I love you because that's what God commands me to do. And that as I read the gospel, this is what it says. And you do so from a posture of humility, of love, and of gentleness. We're told over and over and over again that a soft answer turns away wrath. We need to employ that too as we're engaging those that are hostile to the true gospel by this errant seed that they're espousing. We need to speak the truth in love. And we have this great commitment as we come alongside of this. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. Each and every time you engage someone who's entered into speculative and false teaching, it's building in maturity for you. It's building in maturity for you. One of the ways to grow in Christ is to combat those who have false teaching. One of the ways to grow up into maturity, into mature manhood, into the measure, of the stature of which is Christ is to engage false teaching, whether it be in your husband, your wife, your children, your godmother, somebody you incredibly look up to and respect, and you hear them enter into this kind of crazy tirade. You owe it to them. Inasmuch as you want to find yourself in submission to the Word of God, to go to them and and the build out from that is that you grow into maturity you're pressing on in maturity now let's look at this last passage here verse 16 we're going to grow up into every way into the head who is christ verse 15 and we find out that from this head from christ the whole body so the whole church the whole church it is, it is joined and held together by every joint. And so there's this picture that as, as God comes into Tom's life and he saves him and Ethan's life and he saves him and my life and he saves me, he takes and he looks at us. He's like, okay, well, he's a corner piece. Well, he's a, he's a center piece and he's following and he's bringing us together and he's uniting us. He's joining us together. He's joining us together. And this gives us the idea that this is an ongoing persistent quality that God is doing. Inasmuch as as we stem from the head who is Christ, he is joining us together. And in that joining, he is also holding us together. What a great picture, right? That God comes into individual believers from a variety of backgrounds, and he's seeking to join us together. You know why? Because we all have the same beginning point. We're all made in the image and the likeness of God. Ephesians 2, we are all dead in our trespasses. We've all been regenerated, made new. And now he's seeking to build up his church by joining us together. And by holding us together. He wants to use our giftings to hold his church together. Look what he says there. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part is working properly, You can work against the purposes of God. You can work against the purposes of God. Recognize that God's will will not be thwarted. It will not be scuttled. But you can work against his purposes. This gives us the idea right here that it is on each and every one of us to work properly. And as much as we're working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love When you, in the process, over the course of your life, are working in the local church, exercising the gift that God has given you, and so whatever your spiritual gift is, when you exercise that in the local church, it's building the body up. When you exercise your spiritual gift, you are working properly, you're pouring into the lives of those around you, and you're building up the body. Flip that. If you aren't, exercising the gift that god has given you you are not working properly you're not working properly i went into uh one of our one of our members you thought this about to get real awkward i went into one of our members uh shops a few months ago and he's got cars and parts of cars all over the place it looks like chaos to me you know what a what a good car is for me one that's full of gas that runs and so I, I don't have just a tremendous sense of appreciation for cars in various stages. When I look at that, I say, it's not working at, at all. Like, properly is not even a part of it. It's not working at all. And some of us go into our own lives with the same mentality. And so I, I go to Kelly or I go to, go to Philip and I go to you guys and I would say, you know, what's your gifting? And if they were to say, this is my gifting. And I were to say to them, well, how are you, how are you working that out in the body? And they were to say to me, you know... I'm just not. I'm just, I'm, I'm just not. And I'm using these two good-hearted gentlemen as, as examples because I know they'll, they'll be fine with this. We talked in my mind earlier. <laughs> if you're not using your gifting, you're working against the purposes of God. Any church it's going to be composed of a variety of people at different stages in their Christian walks. You're going to have people that have just come to faith, people that have been Christians over an incredible lifetime. But one thing is true of all of them. They have all been gifted for service. None of them have been given a pass for involvement in the kingdom. And so this is a quick test for each and every one of us. One, if you don't know you're gifting, this is a terrible sign. it's a a sign that, that you and I need to get together, we need to work this thing out. But if you know you're gifting, but you're not using it, you're working against the purposes of God. God desires that his people glorify him through working together. And this is the calling he's placed before us. If we're going to be a church that submits ourselves to the word of God, then we have to be a people that take seriously what that word says to us in our lives. And so for some of us, the gut check, the difficult thing, will be looking at us and saying, how do I add four more hours to my week? How do I change and do this thing? But instead, the question needs to be, God, how, if you were going to order my priorities, what would they be? And God, you saw fit in your omniscience, in your all-knowing, supreme wisdom to give me this gift, to give me a heart for this people group to give me a love and a desire to do these things. So God, if you were going to order my priorities, how would you have me start? This is the first place that all of us need to start. And we recognize that if we are people, if we give ourselves to this pursuit, to allowing our giftings to work out uh, among other Christians in a local body, God will be glorified. And what his word tells us is that he will grow his body up in love it would be the most amazingly wonderful church you would ever want to be a part of. That's my prayer for Ridgecrest. Rest. That each and every man, woman, and child would not only know their gifting, but have a yearning desire to use their gifting in the life of the church so that they might build up those around themselves. That's my prayer for the leadership. That their heart would be to equip those of you who would give yourselves to be submitted for the outworking of this church. That's my prayer for our community that the various churches of our community would be comprised of individuals who would recognize the gifting God has given them and that we would see Highland Terrace, that we would see Family Fellowship, that we would see Johnson Street Church of Christ, that we would see these places explode with the gospel because we find men, women, and children so surrendered to giving their lives to the advancement of his kingdom, not their hobbies, not their pastimes, not their bank accounts. Would you join me in that prayer? a prayer for the churches of our community, a prayer for the the members of the churches of our community that they would surrender themselves to the pursuit of his kingdom, his renown. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, I thank you, God, for your goodness to us, for the way that you love us, care for us. God, I thank you that that you chose to give us gifts for the for your exaltation for the growth and advancement of your kingdom and not our own. God help us to be found faithful. Father, I pray for the leadership of the churches of our community of Greenville of Hunt County that they would be building in that they would be equipping the men and women of their church. Pray for the ministers of this community that That their heart's desire would be to equip the men, women, and children of their churches. Help them grow in the maturity of the various giftings to which they've been given. Charity, love, faithfulness. And God, we pray for these people that, that you would spur in them a desire to use their gifting. That we would see poverty alleviated. That we would see racism done away with in our community the church being salty in our community, being salt and light, and being loving. Father, as we sang earlier, our desire is that you would build your kingdom here. And Father, I pray that we would be found to be faithful subjects in the kingdom of a one and true king, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.